0: Parashat Vayishlach. One of the great um, moments in, early, in the early history of the creation of the Jewish nation is the reconciliation, the meeting between Esau and Yaakov. Yaakov, who has been separated from his brother for 34 years, anticipates this moment, prepares for, for it in the greatest possible detail but the actual moment, the meeting, in some ways climactic, in some ways a bit of an anticlimax. We're expecting a great showdown. We're expecting some you know fireworks, and in fact, there's no fireworks. They reconcile, two brothers meeting, they hug, they kiss, they chat, then they separate, they go their separate ways, and life moves on. It almost feels like, really, that's what you were so concerned about and The Mepharshim, the commentaries, are quite obsessed with the detail of the meeting. So, as recorded in the Torah, how the meeting unfolded and what actually happened. In addition to which, and this is not something that we should dismiss lightly, uh, and I'm going to tread carefully here, Chazal, rightly or wrongly, I'm not suggesting wrongly, but... Broadly speaking, identified all enemies of the Jews as Esau. So whenever we have a reference in the Torah to Esau, somehow we're meant to, in our mind's eye, see this as a representation, not of the moment in which it occurred, but somehow it has historical context or uh, predictive Context because every confrontation between Jew and Gentile that will ever happen over the course of history is somehow represented in an Asov mention in the Torah. In which case, the mention, this um, definition, description of the meeting between Yaakov and Asov, at this, this, by the way, the final time we ever see them together in the Torah, uh, is remarkable and requires attention to detail. So I'm all that by way of introduction. We're going to read the pasuk. The pasuk is in chapter 33 of Bereshit. Lamed Gimel, Pasuk Dalud. The brothers meet again after 34 years. What happens when they finally see each other? So I have not included this pasuk specifically um, in other words, the one I'm about to say is not in the source sheet. But Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, bowed down seven times to his brother, obviously showing a very conciliatory attitude towards his brother Esav. And what does Esav do when he sees his brother, his twin brother, that he, whom he hasn't seen for 34 years? And Esav ran toward him. Vayhabkehu And he embraced him. Vayipol al-Tzavarav. And he fell on his neck. Vayishakehu. He kissed him. Vayivku. And he wept. Quite a number of verbs here. Do you see that? A lot of verbs in this sentence. Vayaratz. Vayichabkehu. Vayipol. Vayishakehu. Vayivku. There's five verbs in one sentence. That's quite unusual. Wouldn't you agree? It's quite an unusual thing. And all of those verbs animate the commentaries. Every single one of those verbs. We're not going to deal with all the verbs. We're going to deal with one or two of them. But it is an incredible pasuk. Because each one of those verbs is pregnant with meaning. What is it? Vayarat, he ran. He couldn't walk. He could have walked. He could have sidled. He could have sauntered. He ran towards his brother. Likrato. kehu. He hugged him. He embraced him. Okay. Vayipol al-Savarav. What's the difference between embracing someone and falling on their neck? I mean, I'm not so big with the, you know, Swiss... Uh, Swiss finishing school etiquette here, but what's the difference between vayichabkehu and vayipol alzavarav? So that you're going to see that the commentaries are very taken with this, because it could have just said vayichabkehu, basically means the same thing. When you embrace someone, obviously it's kind of I don't want to say necking, but you know what I'm saying. It's you know you you throw yourself on that person. So, right? It's an it's an it's an affectionate embrace. Mm-hmm. So why does it need to say vayichabkehu? You could just just said vayipol al tzavarav. Okay. Next thing vayishakehu and he kissed him. <coughs> that is really going to animate the commentaries. That's what we are primarily going to focus on today. Is this vayishakehu aspect, the the fourth verb in the pasuk, and finally vayivku. And they cried. He cried. They cried. Why were they crying? So who was crying? What were they crying for? You're going to see that the commentaries, every single one of these verbs is important. Let's begin with the Midrash. I've kept the Hebrew in there, as I always do. But I've also included a translation. uh, And we're going to read through the translation. It's source number two. And the Midrash says as follows. Vayishakehu, he kissed him. If you look in the Torah, if you look actually in the way the sofer writes the word Vayishakehu in the Torah, you will note unusually that there are dots on top of each letter. Did you know that occasionally in the Torah there is this um, phenomenon of dots on top of a letter? It's very unusual, it occurs you know, on about a dozen occasions in the Torah, when it, however often it is, and I haven't counted. But there are occasional words in the Torah with dots on top of them. Now, anybody who knows about the way a Torah is written knows that it's written without vowels. Hebrew is a very unusual language. Most languages, uh, modern languages, rely on vowels in order to enable pronunciation. Are you aware of that? We have five vowels in English. A, E, I, O, U. I remember learning that at the age of five. A, E, I, O, U. What are those vowels for? So you have consonants, and in order to connect two consonants to each other and know how to pronounce them, you have vowels in between the consonants. Sometimes two vowels, because a combination of vowels may uh, connote a different way of pronunciation. But essentially if all you had was consonants in English you wouldn't know how to pronounce any word. However, Hebrew unusually has no vowels. There are some letters that we use as vowels. For example, an aleph, for example occasionally, for example a vav, we've got two ways of pronouncing a vav if it's in a particular for form in a word, but very often we have no way of pronouncing a word unless we know how to pronounce it. By the way, modern Hebrew, that's a massive problem, because in modern Hebrew they chose, and I I know the reason why I'm going to tell you in a minute, they chose, when they created the concept of modern Hebrew, not to include vowels in the wording at all. What's happened is, that it, it's because many modern words don't lend themselves to Hebrew consonants, that people in Israel mispronounce words because they've got no idea how to pronounce them, because there's no vowels, so they just read it the way they read it. They don't know if it's an A or an O or an E, or they've got no idea, they just see a consonant. The reason why the founders, or let's, let's, the progenitors of modern Hebrew, decided not to include vowels, as part of modern Hebrew, or the re-embrace of Hebrew as a spoken language was because Yiddish used vowels and they wanted to get away from Yiddish. Yiddish not only uses vowels the way we use them in Hebrew with little dots and and, and uh, signs, but actually adds in letters. For example, an ayin in Yiddish is an E sound, E, eh, and an Aleph is either an A ah sound or an O oh sound. They wanted, the, part of the idea of creating modern Hebrew was to pull away from the Yiddish and from the um, ghetto mentality of European Jews. So they created modern Hebrew um, in as much as it was possible they wanted that Hebrew to be a reflection of the classical Hebrew of the Tanakh and the Mishnah. So they decided not to include vowels. So if you read a, uh, a Hebrew, modern Hebrew newspaper, an Israeli newspaper, you'll discover words in there which you cannot pronounce even if you're very familiar with classical Hebrew. Why? Because they essentially transliterations in Hebrew letters of English words. So whenever I read a modern Hebrew book, I struggle when I get to these words because I, I, I've never seen them before. I've never seen this combination of letters. Televisia. I have to tell you that if you read through, through the Tanakh, you won't find the word televisia. Psychologia. you're not gonna find that word in, in classical Hebrew but there's no vowels to help you understand how to pronounce it. So you have to, if you're a, as I am, a reader of rabbinical Hebrew, primarily, I struggle when I get to these transliterations of English words because I'm not familiar with them, okay? So the reason I'm saying this is because if you read a Torah scroll, you will discover, and every bar mitzvah boy discovers this, that there's no vowels. To help them read the Hebrew letters of the Torah. So if you have to study your parasha, you'll suddenly discover that you need to know how to read the words. You've got to memorize the way the words have been written with the vowels. So that when you read it in front of the community, you know, you're going to know how to pronounce the Hebrew words. Now, why is this? Anyone know? Why is Hebrew this classical language, it's ancient language, why does it not include vowels as part of the system by which it should be read? Maybe it wants it to be open to interpretation. Correct, that's exactly the answer. It's exactly the answer because, and I've said this many times before in Shurim I've given, classical Hebrew, unlike modern languages, has very few root words. Um, Tanakh, I believe, has 8,000, somewhere in the region, 8,000 root words. Mishnah, I believe, has 21,000 root words. I didn't check this before the shir, but from memory. English, 140,000. Okay, so you've got, got this huge differential between this classical language and modern languages. Why? because many words actually have many meanings. And not just many meanings in terms of the root words potentially meaning one word or another word, but even the way you vowelize them may change the meaning and the Talmud and Midrash use this methodology to interpret aspects of the scripture to give us messages that are hidden in the text so, the plain meaning of the text will mean one thing but the interpretative meaning will mean something completely different. How is that interpretation employed? By changing the vowelization of the word. Okay, the one exception is this dotting of words in the Torah. There are certain words in the Torah that have dots on them. Okay? so. One of those words can be found in this week's parsha Vayishlach. And the word is Vayishakehu. A long introduction to source number two in your source sheet. Let's continue. He kissed him. Vayishakehu. The word is dotted above each letter. How do Chazal, how do the Midrashic Talmudic sages interpret the dotting above the word... Each letter of the word Kehu, and Esav kissed Yaakov. Says Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, the fact that there are the same amount of dots as letters teaches us that Esav felt compassion in that moment and kissed Yaakov with all his heart. So I, I just—I'm not going to refer to the Hebrew. I just want to tell you that, generally speaking. The amount of dots is not equal to the amount of letters. So if the amount of dots is less than the amount of letters, that teaches you one thing. That means the letters are more important than the dots. If the amount of dots on top of the letters, as written in the Torah, is more than the amount of letters, that teaches you that the dots are more important, that the lesson of the dots is more important than whatever it is the letters tell you by the meaning of that word. Unusually, Vayishakehu has a dot on each letter. Vav, Yud, Shi'in, Kuf, Yud, He, Vav. Right? Every single one of those letters has a dot. That being the case, you're back in neutral territory. Because it's neither more of one nor of the other. So says Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, what is it coming to tell you? It's coming to tell you that Asav actually went to kiss him and meant it. You might have thought that he didn't mean it. No, no. The dots that you might have thought were an interpretation one way or another are actually there to tell you, no, it's neutral. What it means is what it says, and what it says is what it means. That's the first part of the Medrash. Now let's continue. Says Rav Yanai. Rav Yanai challenges Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, and he says to him, If so, why are there dots on top of the letters? What is the point of having dots on letters in the Torah? You know, most, the vast majority of the words in the Torah don't have dots on them. I mean, 99.9% of the words in the Torah don't have dots. Here you put dots. And now you're telling me those dots have no meaning, says Rav Yanai. In which case, leave the dots out. You didn't need to put the dots in in the first place. Answers. Answers the medrash as follows, Rabbi Shimon ben Laza says, to teach that he didn't come to kiss him, but rather to bite him. So his initial visceral reaction to Yaakov when he saw him was hatred. But in the end, as he drew closer to, towards him, his fraternal feelings kicked in. And ultimately, when he kissed him, he kissed him with all his heart. But Yaakov Avinu's neck turned to marble. Oh wow! This is a famous medrash. I learned it in school, right? Everybody learnt this school that his neck turned to marble. Um, what does that mean? I haven't the faintest idea. I wasn't there. I can't verify what a neck turning to marble actually means. It means his neck was hard. So Yaakov Avinu had a neck of marble and Esau wants to bite him. Thus the teeth of that wicked one were blunted. He bit him, maybe he broke a tooth, he needed to book an appointment at the dentist. Thus when the text says, and they cried, so now we're going to look at another one of those five verbs. The final verb of the Pasuk is Vayivku, and they cried. Why were they crying? What were they crying about? Says the Medrash, according to Ravianai. You know why they were crying? This one, Yaakov Avinu, cried because his neck had turned to marble. Oh, who wants their neck to be marble? And the other one cried because he broke his teeth. So essentially, the va'yivku here is not a va'yivku of um, emotional joy, as it were, for two brothers meeting each other. This is uh, a va'yivku of Pain. So Rav Yanai sees this completely differently than Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar saw the Veisha Kehu as a um, as a kind of um, revelation that Esau didn't really hate Yaakov. Esau met his brother and kissed him. Shimon ben Elazar says Vayisha Kehu. There's dots on it exact number of dots as there are letters and the reason why there is this balance is because it says he kissed him, it means he kissed him. Says Ravyanai, not possible. Actually he came to bite him and he did bite him. It could be in the end he kissed him and they reconciled. But, uh, But in the beginning initially there was enmity between them which is to be expected. Yaakov Avinu was protected by this miraculous marble necking Okay, whatever that means. And Esau's teeth were blunted. I mean, think about it. How old was Esau? 34 years after Yaakov Avinu left. They were twins. How old were they at the blessings? 63. 34 years later, they were 97. I'm rather surprised that Esau had teeth at 97, frankly. But anyway, that's just my own point. The Medrash is not making... A medical point. It's making a um, kind of... I don't know how to... I don't know how to present it easily. It's making a political point, a sociological point, I don't know exactly how to say it. Essentially, the Rabbi wants to stress the enmity between Esau and Yaakov that still exists, and Rabshiman Shimon ben Elazar wants to stress that actually, there's fraternal feelings of love and affection between Esau and Yaakov. How are we to reconcile these two views of the meeting between the brothers based on exactly the same words in the Pasuk? But Yishakehu means he kissed him. One, According to one interpretation, it's because he loved him, and according to another interpretation, it's because he hated him. It didn't really kiss him, right? Well, could be that they are conflicted. I want to understand what Chazal are trying to teach us about the relationship between Esav and Yaakov. That's really what my shir is about today. We're using this as a code. We're trying to decode this pasuk according to the mindset of Chazal to try and understand the relationship between Esav and Yaakov. How, and by the way, Asov is not, it's not just Asov, the man who lived at the time of Yaakov Avinu. Asov becomes this concept of all Gentiles who hate Jews are called Asov. Are there Gentiles who have affection for Jews or not? And if they have affection for Jews, do they want to bite them but end up kissing them? That's really what this Chazal is trying to teach us. The Pasuk means what it means, as we're going to see that Ibn Ezra is very insistent about that. But Chazal have a way of addressing this whole issue, using the Pasuk as the platform to understand the relationship, the dynamic of the relationship between Esau and Yaakov. Let's look at Rashi. So Rashi quotes two opinions that are to be found in a Sifri on Bahaloischah. Bahaloischah, by the way, is in Bamidbar, not here. But this happens to me, in Bahalo there are also dots on letters and the Medrash there um, goes through a whole series of uh, of different permutations of dots on letters to try and understand why those dots exist, says the Medrash, talking about this particular Pasuk, and he kissed it, There are dots above the letters of this word and there's a difference of opinion Expressed in the Brishen Sifri as to what the dots are intended to suggest, and now Rashi quotes the two opinions. Unusually for Rashi, he quotes them in the name, in the name of the two people who said them. Okay, no, only one of those. So usually, what Rashi does when there's two opinions, first of all, there's two things you need to know about Rashi. Very important. I don't know how many of you are scholars of Rashi, but Rashi is very eager, as you know, to present us with a what we call a pshat interpretation of a pasuk. He was taken to task by two people principally for his version of pshat. I'm giving you a bit of a history of this, okay? I think we've discussed it before, but I just want to give a bit of a background. Rashi was an incredible scholar. Somebody who had the entire Chazal at his fingertips. And when Rashi offers us an interpretation of a Pasuk, you can be very sure that he thought very long and hard, very carefully as to how he was going to interpret a pasuk for posterity. He recognized that what he was going to say about a pasuk was the way this pasuk would be interpreted, not just in his own lifetime, but for centuries to come. So we now have to understand, looking at Rashi, why he chose a particular chazal over another chazal or indeed any chazal at all. So when I said that Ibn Ezra and the Rashbam took him to task, Ibn Ezra is a Spanish Biblical scholar living not long after Rashi, and the Rashbam was actually Rashi's grandson. And he was a French-German, you know, this Rhineland scholar. Both From both angles, they were not satisfied with what Rashi did. Why? Because often, Rashi seems to have chosen a chazal over the basic meaning of the words. Okay, what do I mean by that? You're going to see Ibn Ezra is going to take him to task in a minute about this particular interpretation. Essentially, let's look at the word here in this pasuk. Vayishakeyu means, and he kissed him. What What could Rashi have said as an easy explanation? Here we are. After all this anticipation about this grand and scary meeting between Asaph and Yaakov, and it says Vaisha Kehu, what's the immediate question that springs to mind? Really? Asaph kissed his brother? Why didn't he pull out a knife and kill him? So what should Rashi say? Because he loved him. Does he have a chazal to support him? We know already that he does. We saw it in Midrash Rabba, Rabbi Shimon Ben Eloza. So he could have just said, Vayisha Kehu. That's what it means. He kissed him. He loved him. They cried. They were emotional. It was a reconciliation. It was a reunion. Well, how are you going to present it? That's not what Rashi does. Rashi offers us two approaches to the word Kehu. Now, there's another element to this. Rashi, when he presents us with two opinions, usually presents us with an opinion that is Pshat, and because the pshat doesn't make us happy, presents us with an opinion that's not quite pshat, but could also be interpreted as, an, as a simple way of understanding it, because we're not going to be happy with the pshat. But when he does that, he doesn't use a name of the tanah to identify the rabbi who produced that opinion. So Rashi is not there to record in exact detail the words of a Midrash or a Gemara. Rashi is simply there to inform us of an understanding of the pasuk which will enable us to move on to the next one, to the next verse. Here he does something extremely unusual. Not only does he give us two opinions and we can kind of understand those two opinions because we know that the basic understanding of the word is puzzling. But he gives us a name identifying the second opinion. What's interesting is that his initial opinion is the one that you would least expect. It's not the pshat. It's the second opinion that's the pshat. So the first opinion is a homiletic opinion, it's a kind of That's not the basic understanding of the word. It's a homiletic understanding of the word. The second opinion, the one he does in the name of a particular rabbi, and we'll see in a moment who that is, is the one that you would have assumed is the understanding of the word. What does it mean to kiss someone? Do you kiss someone if you don't like them? Of course not. You kiss someone when you like them. So now we're going to read the Rashi. That's by way of introduction. Do you you, you understand what I just said? Is that Rashi is Rashi has a problem with the dots? Why the dots? So so they're, they're so both of them are. are but but he's using a measure, But everyone's concerned with the dots, right. and Rashi is trying to use the dots as a way of offering a basic understanding of this word. Key, which in a way is so shocking. How is it that? A- I would understand, by the way, if Yaakov kissed Esau, right? Why? He'd sent him gifts. He was scared of him. He wants to make up with him. I would understand that. The thing you least expect is for Esau to kiss Yaakov. That's what you least expect in this story. In other words, if I, you know, I, how many times have I said this, Ruthie? Whenever we have stories in, in the Torah, we are hamstrung by the fact that we know the end of the story before we get there. So we, we are so... Busy with our knowledge that we don't look at the story. You know, when you read a book, you know, I told this to Jonathan If we read the last page of his book before we read the whole book, we wouldn't read the whole book, right? We know the end of the story. The question is before we got to the word Vaishakehu, how might we have expected Esav to react to seeing the brother who cheated him out of his birthright and the blessings and who ran away? How would we expect him to react? He's come with 400 men. What, is, what are we expecting here? We're expecting a bloodbath. So we're, Rashi is reacting the way we need to react, which of course we don't do because we know the story. The question is, why is he using... A secondary understanding, or a less obvious understanding of the word vayishakeu, as his initial approach. You're suggesting it's because of the dots. And by the way, that's what he says. But then, he, if he did that, why bother bringing the second one? By the way, there are other opinions in the medrash which he doesn't mention. Also by Aratisi, why would okay, I said you, you won't hear Ruthie. I said there's five verbs in this sentence. How many psukim do you know in the Torah where there are five verbs? Hugged him, too. Why? him. They cried. Five separate verbs in this sentence. The whole sentence doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. so it lends itself to interpretation. Rashi is acting, or is interpreting the way that we would feel. Come on, give us some understanding here. Open this up for us. Unlock it for us. We don't know what's going on. Okay, let's look at the Rashi. Even if was kissing him, it doesn't have to have been a And we gangster too Okay, kiss each other. So you kind of a social a social kiss. You know, in in last week's Parsha, I did a, I l- I studied this great in great detail. I didn't give a share on it, maybe next year. Last week's Parsha, we have this Yaakov Avinu kissed Rachel as soon as he met her. Right. And there's a bunch of mafarshim who are horrified that Yaakov Avina would kiss a girl he'd never met. Who he didn't know? How is it possible? Was it a proper kiss? Was it not a proper kiss? Did he kiss her on the mouth? Did he kiss her on the cheek? You've got to look at the mafarshim. It's stunning because they are so taken with this. Obviously, people who are extremely careful in sneers and they're looking at one of the Ovois and he's kissing what is going on here? How is this even possible, right? I mean, we're not talking about the guy next door. He's not our neighbour. This is one of the Ovois, Yaakov Avinu. You're absolutely right. We've got to understand the context of the kiss, which is why the Medrash previously, the one which we, which we looked at already, the Medrash Rabbah said, Vayivku doesn't mean they were crying because of emotional attachment to each other. This wasn't a cry of happiness. It was a cry of pain. They were in pain. One had his teeth knocked out. The other one had his neck bitten and turned into marble, whatever it was. okay. let's look at the Rashi. There are dots above the letters of this word. I'm reading the translation I put here in source number three. And the difference of opinion is expressed in the Bryson Sifri as to what these dots are intended to suggest. Some explain the dotting as meaning that he did not kiss him with his whole heart However, there is a dissenting view, says Rashi. Rabbi ben You know who Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai was it was a, one of the principal Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva. What is he renowned for? He was in the cave. He was in the cave. Why was he in the cave? Because the Malchus roimi were angry with him because he spoke out against the fact that they were forbidding the study of Torah. Who is Malchus Roimi identified with? Edoim, Eesov. So just using that as the backdrop, what does rab Shimon ben Yochai say? Do you know what he says? Conceptually speaking, Esav represents the Gentile hatred of Jews. Esav soyneli Yaakov. The default, the default position of an Esav is hatred of Yaakov. Why? Esav represents the ultimate form of materialism, of opposition to God, of rejection of God. Yaakov represents this yearning for spirituality, this yearning for God, this yearning for the human um, uh, role as a conduit between the heaven and the earth. Ace, it's, it's a halacha. By the way, what does halacha mean? Not halacha like, okay, you have to say shema every day. That's not what it means. Halacha means it's a certainty. Okay? I'll give you, I'll give you a scientific example. I've used it before in other shurim. We have a, um, a scientific certainty discovered by sir isaac newton an apple dropped on his head and suddenly he said bingo i don't think he used that word there's a thing called gravity and then he defined it using physics there's a thing called gra- what does gravity mean gravity means that wherever you are on a planet there is a force called gravity which pulls things towards that the surface of that planet Uh, It could be the moon. It doesn't really matter. Anything which is extremely large has a force that pulls things towards it. That is a certainty. Gravity is a certainty. You can't get away from it. There it is. Doesn't matter where you are. If you jump up, what's going to happen? You're going to come back down. Right? Everybody knows that. However, could you walk if you didn't defy gravity? No, of course not. Because every time you lift your leg to put it forward into the next step, you are defying gravity. See, even though, even though there is a certainty, let's call it halocha, that there is such a thing as gravity, there is also a counterpoint, which is that, you, that there are methods by which that gravity can be defied. By the way, every time you've been in an aeroplane, you have defied gravity. The aeroplane took off and it flew at 38,000 feet to wherever it was going and then it landed. It defied gravity. Halacha esav soineh le What does that mean? It's not a halacha in terms of it being a law in the Shulchan Aruch. Halacha means that there is such a thing as a certainty, which is that what Esau represents, the ultimate form of Esau, is always going to be a sona le Yaakov, to whatever Yaakov is. Now, there's many permutations of that. Nothing is black and white. There's lots of gray area in between. But ultimately, we understand the concept. If you are a pure representation of what it is that God planned for his creation, anyone who opposes that is going to have tremendous antipathy towards you. Says Rabbi Shimon Beyochai, hiding in a cave from the Romans, who are identified by Chazal as Asov. It's a halocha, it's a yodua. It's well known, everybody knows. Asov Soyne Le Yaakov. He's sitting there, he's scratching his head, thinking to himself, one second, but it says in the posuk by how are we meant to understand the fact that if Esau saw in the you and he kissed him? What are we meant to say? Mm-hmm. Says Reb, At that moment, his pity was really aroused, and he kissed him with his whole heart. I don't want to use this comparison, but I'm going to use it anyway. Okay? You know me by now. Imagine you're sitting in Auschwitz. you Shem right? Sitting in a cave. Let's, we're trying to find a comparison we can relate to. Halochah ki yodua, there you are. You're in the midst of a Nazi hell. People are being murdered every day in a gas chamber. And you're thinking to yourself, but one second, the post says, Do you know what Rabbi Shemba Yichai is saying? We're going to look at it in greater detail. That even in that situation, there is a moment, there is kind of a eureka moment, a bingo moment, where they can love you with all their heart. It's a remarkable revelation, if you think about it. The word Vaishokeu, the dots on the Vayishokeyu are there to teach you, says Rabbi Shimon Yochai, that it doesn't make any sense. Don't try and make sense out of it because somehow when we're in the midst of we face a world which is full of anti-Semitism, we're going to look at that. Somehow we have to understand that there are those who don't hate us, not only don't hate us, but who actually... Have, fe- have feelings of tremendous affection toward us. How are we meant to understand that? At that moment, look at it. Look what the words are. I'm not sure if you ever looked at this Rashi, you looked at it this way. I can't believe it. Most people don't. Most people look at the Rashi. Okay, he's presenting two opinions. It's Shimon Ben-Yochai. We're not talking... It's Rashbi. We're not talking about just an opinion that he's quoting namelessly. Let's look at... Okay, let's look at Reb Ibn Ezra. Yeah, go on. In that context, then, I understand what you're saying. In other words, Sabud's example, that it didn't make any sense that the UN voted for its one time. We're going to get to that. It doesn't make sense. Is it is it a it's a moment and then it goes away. Could be. In other words, do you, do you look could in the but shah he do right? The, the word But But sh- sh- no no of it's course it's a moment. you know why how we know it's a moment? Hour. You know how it's, we know it's a moment? Because gravity always applies. It's the gravity is always there. The natural reaction and response is negative. But You're but unbelievable, right? It's an unbelievable revelation. I'm going to look at Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says, so Ibn Ezra, as I said before, is very much concerned with anything that kind of deviates from the, uh, what we called in yeshiva, the poshut pshat, right? I know it's an an alliterative term. Poshut pshat means, come on, this is what it means. If somebody says, how are you, then, Obviously, they mean how are you, right? They don't mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, what time is it. So, if the posuk says what does it mean? He kissed him. Says the Ibn Ezra, the midrashic interpretation of the dots on top of the word "va'yishakehu" he kissed him, is good for immature babies. That's what he writes. Look at it. Um, those who wean from the, from uh, you know, who wean from their mothers. That's what it means. Don't, don't be childish. You want to teach a kid in school that Vayishokeyu means that? Okay. However, but according to the straightforward interpretation, Esau did not plan to do evil to his brother. What's the proof? The word Vayivku. And they cried, just like happened at the reunion of Yosef and his brothers. There was love and affection between the two of them. So Ibn Ezra wants to just bring us back down to planet Earth without using gravity. And telling it tells us, when it says, it means what it says. When we read the pshat, we can read the pshat. We want to add homiletic interpretations and apply it to our lives, as Chazal did. That's wonderful. But the plain meaning of the text is what actually happened that day. Esau and Yaakov met and they kissed each other and they cried and they were happy to meet each other and they separated. separated. They went on you know, into, back into their own lives, and that's what happened. Now, if we want to use Esau as a concept, and Yaakov as a concept, and see some interpretation of Yishakeu with the dots on the letters, do whatever you like. But what actually happened is what actually happened. Okay, let's look at Rabbi Shamsen Raphael Hirsch, number five in your source sheet. Milas Vayivku, he a Nemon his enushi toho. He takes the Ibn Ezra and runs with that ball. Remember something very important. Emotions cannot be legislated. Emotions it's a very interesting idea, and of course, in modern times, psychology has embraced this idea and it's been hugely helpful in terms of giving people therapy. You cannot legislate emotions. If somebody has a feeling, there's nothing purer than a feeling. Do you know why? Because it doesn't come from your brain. Emotions come from some other place. I mean, it may come from your brain, and what I'm talking about is not intellectual. It's not something that you can plan. I can't plan to be happy. Either I'm happy or I'm not happy. I can't plan to be sad. You know, I always tell people when, they, when they've lost a parent or a loved one, I say to them, you're going to suddenly discover that you're very emotional about it, and you're gonna think it's a bit embarrassing. I, I can't show anybody, I'm crying. I've got tears running down my face. I, I, I've gotta to run to my room. I, what are you talking about? There's no, no greater purity than that emotion. That's the real reaction. You're not intellectualizing it. You're not rationalizing. You're not saying, okay, they were old, they were sick, it's better for them, whatever it is you're going to say, when an elderly parent dies, right? People have all kinds of rational... No, no. This is the visceral reaction, the emotional reaction, of somebody who's lost someone that they loved. That's real. Says Rabsham Milas Hirsh, And they cried. He aid Nehrman. It is an absolute testimony to that, that what we have revealed for us here is pure human emotion. It's possible for somebody to kiss and they don't feel it. You know, she was saying earlier, it's possible for people to have social kissing, Right. You know, they hug each other, they don't really mean it. She used the idea of the mafia, you know, they kiss each other, but they don't. the next day they can order a hit, right? And that's not what we're talking about, says, says Rabbi Hirsch. When people cry, I mean, I'm not talking about an actor, uh, you know, Hollywood actor, maybe. But ordinary people, in ordinary lives, they cry. And when they cry, they mean those. you can't fake those tears. Those are real tears. What does the posuk tell us immediately afterwards? And they cried. These are two brothers, twin brothers, born together, brought up together in the same home, got into a bit of sibling rivalry, Situation: we situation very unfortunate, separated for decades. Now they meet up with each other. And with all this anticipation, Yakov is terrified, of is angry. Suddenly they see each other. He ran towards him. He hugged him, hugged him properly, kissed him, and they cried. You know why they're crying? Because they're brothers. In the end, that fraternal, that brotherly feeling that, it, that they had towards each other, that was real. That was the real, real. Not all the other stuff. <speaking in Hebrew> this kiss and those tears revealed to us Kigam Aesov, who Mizera Avraham Avinu. A remarkable Rabbi Hirsch. Do you know who Esav is? Wicked as he is. Ultimately, he's a, he is a grandson of who? Avraham Avinu. The Avi HaChesed, the the uh, the exemplar of kindness, of emotion, of feeling. That's who Asov is. The Ein Oyraq Parua. He's not just a warrior who wants to go hunting. <laughs> Otherwise, how is it possible that he was able to give the expression of his emotion in this way? Ultimately, there is a well of emotion within him and within what he's trying to say, within everybody who comes from a good origin, that is goodness, um, apt in, in its greatest form of purity. Asav in this particular moment, displays... A side of him that is absolute perfection. Not that he's a perfect person all around, but in this moment he is a brother who <laughs> loves his brother. I'm just I w i do don't want to read the whole thing. You can look through the whole thing yourself. Let's look at the Dover. Number six. The Yiv Kushne says Hamik taking Rabbi Hirsch's idea even further. Hamik is the netziv. He was the one generation after um, Rabbi Hirsch. Well, not quite. They they kind of lived alongside each other. One in Lithuania, um, the netziv was the Rosh Hashiva of Olojin. Rabbi Shamsen Raphael Hirsch was the rabbi of the Orthodox community in Frankfurt. I think they were like five, ten years apart in age. The HaMek Dovo takes this idea a little further. The Yivku, they cried, The word VaYivku doesn't mean, and he cried, it means, and they cried. It's there to tell us that Yaakov, even, even Yaakov at that moment, also found within him a great love and affection for Esau. It was a two-way street, it wasn't a one-way street. Esau the wicked, who had intended to kill Yaakov, he's lived in fear for 34 years. Now he's confronted with his nemesis, his greatest enemy, the man who wants to kill him outright. The man runs towards him and kisses him. Do you know what his reaction is? He doesn't kind of stand there stiff. They both cried. They held onto each other like brothers and cried. Says the Natsiv. Here it is. Here's the kicker. When the inheritors of Esau's legacy, let's translate it that way, find within them a purity of spirit to recognize the Descendants of Israel and their greatness and their value. Then we too must have a corresponding recognition of Esau. It should never just be a one-way street where we're taking and we don't give back. When we have those among the Esau, however you're going to define the Esau, who are kind to us, who recognize us, who appreciate us, who do good for us, we have to reciprocate with those same feelings, those emotions and those ideals towards them. It's a two-way street, says the Natziv. Because Esau ultimately, even if he is our nemesis, as by the way is presented in Isaac's blessings and in Esau's, Nevertheless, ultimately, when you boil everything down, when it all crystallizes around the facts, he's our brother, says the native. We see in the Gemara that Rabbi, the author of the Mishnah, the editor of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, uh, um, was very friendly with Antoninus, who was the governor from Rome. A br- it was a brotherly friendship. In other words, it's not either cold or neutral. It's cold or hot. And that is indicated, to the native, by the word Vayivku, and they cried. It wasn't and he cried, it was and they cried. Now I'm going to read you a piece from Rabbi Yeshua Weitzman, who is the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivat Ma'alot in the Galilee. And he takes this idea and he runs with the ball. And by the way, I saw various examples of this. This was the most articulate. That's why I've reproduced it here. I'm not sure I've finished the whole thing. I'll I'll give it another 10 minutes and then I will leave the rest to you. A beautiful piece which really takes this idea and gives it the breadth and depth that we need in order to understand the dynamic of our relationship with the Gentile world. As Jews, and particularly as Jews who have ideals that are Jewish. I'm not talking about Jews who are more Gentile than the Gentiles. I'm talking about Jews who understand what it means to be Jewish and act on it. That's that's what we're talking about. And then there are Gentiles who, as we said before, force of gravity. Their natural reaction to Jewish identity is negative. How are we meant to... Navigate that dynamic. Look what he says. There's many things that we can learn from this parsha. About the uh how we should uh, regard the dispute, the debate, the differences, the arguments between Yaakov and Esav. The Tsuras and how we should correspond, how we should relate to the nations of the world. This parsha is the headquarters. If you want to understand it, this is it. By the way, I'm not he, he goes into a lot of detail. We're going to specifically focus on the points which we've raised. the anukudo achas. Let's look at one particular point which Chazal interpreted in a particular way. Rega ha The actual moment of the meeting between Jacob and Esav. Metu'ar How is it expressed in the Torah? And he quotes the pasuk v'yorot Asov ran towards him, his brother Yaakov, he hugged him, he fell upon his neck, and he kissed him, and they cried five verbs in one posuk. Esav lots El Yaakov, says Rabbi Weitzman. Esav ran towards Yaakov, The Yaakov choshesh. What is Yaakov's suspicion at this moment? What do you think Yaakov is thinking when he sees Esav behind him, 400 men running at great speed towards him. What's going to happen? Him Is Esav going to do him terrible harm, damage him, kill him? What's it going to happen? What happens at the end? He ran towards him. We're in great doubt how that's going to end up. What happened? He hugs him and kisses him. Hamila vaYishakehu k'tuvah b'Sefar Torah b'Tzurat miYuchedet. The word vaYishakehu is written in a very particular, unique way in the Torah. Yeshnu kudot me'al hamila. There are dots above the word b'Sefri b'Parshat Balotcha, and in the Sefri is quoted by Rashi the Sefri in Balotcha. Yeshro shimal hamilim and uKudot There's a whole piece there about. Nekudot, which appear above words in the Torah. And there, the Chazal offer interpretations as to the meaning of these dots. And Rashi brings the Sifri as we learnt earlier. It would appear that the general rule is... How are we to interpret a word according to the, the Sifri in Parsha Baalotcha? How are we meant to interpret a word which has dots above it? Somehow it diminishes the obvious understanding of that word. In other words, the dots are there to tell you, don't take this totally as it. Peers, there's some other way of understanding this word. But now, there's a difference of opinion between two sides of the coin in Chazal. According to one interpretation, the nashikah, the kiss, that uh, um, any kiss, is generally speaking, when the word neshikah is used in the Torah, it means that they were (coughs) kissed with all their heart, not the way we described earlier, you know, the peck on the cheek or the mafia bosses. Generally speaking, the word neshikah means, I kissed, that means, I meant it. It's it's an expression of love and of strong feeling. (laughs) However, in which case, the nukudot, these dots come to somehow reduce that interpretation, somehow take away from it. The mm-hmm. That Esav did not kiss Yaakov with all his heart. That would be the automatic assumption of dots above the letter, above the letters of the word, Vaisha Aval Shimon Ben Yochai Rashbi says, Shabshathu. But hi biyadur Yaakov. sitting in his cave says that doesn't make any sense. Why? Because we know that, you know, the rule of law is that esaf sonel Yaakov, that whatever esav is hates Yaakov. That's the, that's the general rule that we all know to be true. In which case... What are these dots there to tell you? In which case, even though it says Vayishakeyu, actually the dot it's, it's like a double bluff, right? You, your Vayishakeyu would have assumed, yeah, he kissed him, but he didn't mean it. The dots are there to tell you, no, no, of course you would think he didn't mean it, but actually he did mean it, it's a double bluff, right? In other words, the how do you here diminish the obvious interpretation by saying that Nishka here, which you would have thought he didn't mean, actually he did mean. So Rabashimberchai is coming, he's adding an extra layer to this idea. Kalhu Rashi it is a general rule when we study Rashi, if Rashi brings any interpretation and includes the name of the author of that interpretation, then it's, Rashi wants to tell you that there is a connection between the person who said it and what it is that they said. By the way, this is very unusual, because as you know, in um, historically, there wasn't this historical approach to the study of anything, of any Chazal. What he's saying here, and I'm I'm assuming, I didn't check it, I'm assuming that there's proof for this. The generally speaking, as I said earlier, Rashi doesn't mention names. In which case, we need to understand, because Rashi, there's a paucity of words. He doesn't just use words lightly, because, you know, I know it's easy for us. We can just print a page and copy it and a photocopy and print it out. In those days, every word that you read had been written by hand. So he was very careful the words that he wrote, and particularly because he knew that what he was writing would be rewritten hundreds of thousands of times. Therefore, he didn't want to add in too many words if he didn't need to. Says... Rabbi Weitzman, and I'm sure I, I have not studied the basis for this, that any time that Rashi mentions a name of a rabbi and associates it with a particular interpretation of a Pasuk, it's there to teach you that there is a connection between that author, that a, the person who came up with the opinion, and the opinion itself. So, in which case, Khan, Hevi Rashi, at Divrei Rashbi, B'She Ram. Here, Rashi brings Rashbi's name in association with this particular interpretation. In which case, we need to understand his insistence on making the association. So the most basic interpretation, we mentioned this earlier, it's because there is a connection between Rashbi and his personal circumstances, And that which he talks about, which is Esav associated with Edom, associated with the Roman Empire, under whose auspices he falls, and because of whom he is incarcerated in a cave, or at least self-incarcerated. When he says Esav hates Yaakov, what's he talking about? He's in the midst of his own horrible circumstances because he's caught in a cave because he spoke um, against the might or the power of Rome he spoke against the authorities he was forced to run away and hide himself in a cave Esa'v, and we know that the Roman Empire Roman authority is identified by Chazal as Esav in which case Rashbi's interpretation here is quite unusual, and Rashi just wants to point that out, that you would have expected Rashbi to have the opposite opinion, that Esav hates Yaakov, and therefore this proves that he hates Yaakov. No, Rashbi is saying, even in the midst of his own difficulties, as a result of the descendants of Esav, nevertheless, he's honest enough, as it were, to offer an interpretation which puts Esav in a good light. That's al-derach ulam however let's look at it much deeper and understand it in a much deeper and more profound way Rashi ultimately this is a powerful and deep message that can be drawn out of the Torah Rashbi wants to convey something extremely important to us and it's also brought in a, in a separate ma'amar in the Zohar, who is traditionally the author of the Zohar, Reb Shimon Bar Yochai. And this is in, also in Parashat Vayishlach. Vayishakehu nakud milamala. The word Vayishakehu is dotted above. Shelon nashkubir sono And you might say it's because he didn't kiss him fully with his own will. He didn't want to kiss him this is absolutely remarkable Amar Rabbi Abba so how does Rabbi Abba interpret this is not with his full will let's be honest somebody runs to his brother and kisses him clearly they're not angry because if they were angry they wouldn't run towards them and kiss them and cry that's not what's going to happen However, it goes against his grain because really he should have been angry with him. So how is it that at that moment when Esau saw his brother, suddenly his anger disintegrated, dissipated and he runs towards his brother and kisses him. What's going on? Says the Zohar. What's the reason? hahu the reason? Valkane loyahol a savl shlot becazo Shekahu Kol hadvarim shebaolam haze to Luyim le mala Ukeshe maskimim le malat Maskimim gam cane le It's a very frightening Zohar. Asav, the physical manifestation of Asav in this world, is only there. Because somehow there is heavenly agreement for that Esav to exist. But we know what happened the night before. In the middle of the night, Yaakov Avinu had a massive fight, which Chazal interprets as having been with the Sar Shel Esav, the heavenly representation of Esav. Who won the fight? Yaakov Avinu. What happened at the end of the fight? The Sar Shel Esav gave a blessing to Yaakov. In fact, he changed his name to Yisrael. Asav the next day, who's the physical manifestation of this concept, sees Yaakov. By all, by all manifestations of Asav and the way we understand what Asav represents and the history between them, what's going to happen right now? He's going to march towards him with a sword and kill him, right? He couldn't. Why not? Because you need permission from above. Somehow, what, when there is an Asav that hates a Jew... Somehow, that's got something to do with what's going on in heaven. It's not. It's not. To, that's what the Zohar is saying. Don't imagine that this is something that's going on down here, and that it's got nothing to do with what's going on in heaven. Look how he. Look how he takes this forward. I know I'm going on a little longer, but you'll forgive me. It's such a fascinating topic. Esav nishak et yakov Esav kissed Yaakov with all his heart. You should know, it wasn't his natural reaction. It's not something that he wanted to do. We know that that's not what he wanted to do. What was his plan? He came with 400 men. Nobody comes with 400 men to kiss their brother. That's not why you come with 400 military men. The truth is, he wanted to do great harm to Yaakov and perhaps even kill him. Ulam hadvarim You should know that's 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 not the way things work out. They're not nikva here. Those decisions are not made here. Ultimately, those decisions are made above. shel berachato. If it's true, to, we know that the sar of Esav. Had somehow reconciled with Yaakov and blessed him. In which case, the physical Esav cannot possibly be angry with Jacob and do what he wants to do against him. That's the reality of it. When he sees Yaakov, he feels <laughs> pity for him. He has a strong emotional feelings towards him. It's, of course it's true that God gave us free will in every aspect of our lives. The ultimate, the way history unfolds, the great things that happen in history, those things, these are not things which come about as a result of free will. The little things that we can choose to do or not to do, those are things that we have control over. But the giant movements of history, those are things that are not decided here. Ella They get decided, as it were, by the sare, the malachim, the angels that control the nations that live in heaven. Ba'alam ha'elyon korim ha'dvarim. First the things happen, in the olam ha elyon u misham hem mit uh, mitla mit mishtal schlim elaynu le olameinu from there they unfold as it were in our world and to and uh, to us al kane omer rabbi shimon now we now let's go back to roshon beyachai said what's the halacha? what's the natural law hanohag shebalam hu she'sav sonel the default is that whatever it is that Esav is, Sonele Yaakov. That we know for sure. We don't need, by the way, you don't need a science book for that. Just look at a history book. Anu Makirim et Zemikarov. And we, indeed, we know it from very close to us. Anu Yodim Kama Anteshemiut Yeshba Olam. We know how much anti Semitism exists in the world, and it's inexplicable. It makes no sense. Why are we the focus of so much negative attention? It doesn't make it's not rational, but it seems to be a natural law. Esav Sonel Yaakov, doesn't matter if you're right wing, it doesn't matter if you're religious, if you're an atheist, if you're left wing, you're socialist, you're communist. Everybody has some reason why they don't like Jews. What is it? Halakha, it's a natural law. Esav Sonel Yaakov. Whatever it is that Esav is, Soner to whatever it is that Yaakov is. Sinat Esav Yaakov, hi davar barur. It's, we don't need scientific proof for it, it's something that's self-evident. Aval, afal piken, nevertheless, anu ro'im ha'umot klap'i We see that, that there's another side to this, which is that there is an incredible compassion towards Jews, also from the umot <inaudible> ha'olam, which also actually makes very little sense. Umar in Israel, every single gun used by an IDF soldier in Israel is the property of the U.S Army. It says it on the gun. Did you know that? Every single gun. That, even so, I, no, I don't I believe that they're made here. And that the the guns that are used by the soldiers are the property of the U.S. military, but yet we have them. How do you explain it? How is it even something that makes sense? We need to understand that that reality is not something which begins in our world. It's not something which we initiate. Why? It's not possible to initiate it. Iaf Son Yakov, that's the default. That's the gravity. That's the reality. That's the scientific fact. It is something which is established as it were in heaven. When heaven agrees, or when heaven comes to the, as it were, decision that this is the way, things should turn out for the Jewish nation. That's the way it's going to happen. Ha-umot, ha-umot lemata, pa-alot, kach benigud, le-tiv'am ve-l-retzonam. You know what happens then? Esav sees Yaakov, va-yaratz he runs towards him, va-yichabkehu, and he hugs him, va-yipol al-tsavarav, He falls on his neck. And he kisses him with dots on top because it doesn't make any sense. It's against the natural law. And he cries and we cry. That is a reality that's not up to us. We need to recognize that whenever we have support from wherever it is within the Gentile world, it's not something we can take for granted. That is not the natural law. And therefore, we need to, as the Natsiv said, not just recognize it and expect it, but recognize it for what it is and reciprocate with our kindness and our warm feelings and thank them for the support that we're getting. We'll leave it here for today. There's more. You can look at it, but we'll leave it here.